What is going on? My name is Taylor and this podcast is called Who Knows because who really does? This project was brought to life in an effort to create a space where it is okay to be confused. We all have questions, fears, and uncertainties that try to stop us from living. By talking to people with different perspectives, we can work to find the commonalities and differences that allow us to understand that not everyone has it all figured out, and that's okay. You get to create your own normal, because normal is bullshit. Hey everyone, how are you? What's going on? We have had some crazy weather here in North Carolina. I had two snow days. I'm an adult and I get excited about snow days and being inside. And we, uh, yeah, it was pretty nice. Uh, being from Florida, I still get pretty excited about snow. And now that my parents live in town, we went sledding and had all kinds of winter fun. Uh, so that was awesome. So this episode of Who Knows is about race. Now, I'm fully aware that this topic is one that does not just include the race of myself and the guests of this episode. This is something that reaches much farther and goes much bigger than just this podcast and just this one episode. The ideas of respect and understanding and listening to one another is something that should reach across all races and be talked about more than just on a podcast. I've been looking forward to this episode because I feel like there's so many things to be learned, so many things that I want to learn, and so many stories to be told. And this is just one of the many. My guest today is one of my professors from UNCSA. His name is G. Clausen, and he is a freelance sound designer, composer, producer, engineer, and writer based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So here's a conversation between a white female and a black male. So this is where I, this is what I think is going to be the most interesting is the, I don't know how old you are, don't care, AJ, nothing but a number, but there, I know that there's a gap. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a lot of the, one of the things that's really interesting is that you have a broader spectrum of experiences in terms of this than I do. Even so, even, even to the point where maybe things were better or worse or even worse in one time or another when you were alive. So mm -hmm. I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about that. Okay. So like, so, so, okay, what was it like for you in high school? Um, in high school, I actually moved from a very small town, a college town in Iowa to a, the major city in Iowa. So I moved from a town called Cedar Falls, Iowa, which is the home of the University of Northern Iowa to uh, Des Moines, Iowa, which is the, the capital city. Mm -hmm. And um, there were stark differences between the two places. So Cedar Falls at that time probably was 99% white outside mm -hmm. of the college. Okay. Um, the neighboring town is Waterloo, Iowa. The east side of Waterloo, Iowa is probably 90% black. Okay. So uh, Cedar Falls is actually... Um, but I've come to find out it probably was a sundown town. Now, a sundown town meant that no black people were allowed in the city limits after sundown. That was like an actual law? It was custom. Okay. Custom. Okay. Um, but everyone knew. Um, and so my sister and I lived in this town. Um, we were uh, early on in elementary school. Um, my sister and I were the two black students until... Uh, fifth grade and then there was another black student who came from Boston um, his mom was in a grad program at the college um, and then in junior high school there was one other black student so there were four of us total so and this is as the town gradually was shifting um, so it no longer was like observing the custom for the kids that were living there um, but I assume that it probably still existed for adults because I wouldn't see any except for, you know, my friend's mom mm. <laughs> who lived like right across the street from from our school. And in that town, it was interesting. My mom was a teacher at at the elementary school. My grandfather was the janitor at the elementary school. So I had family at the school. I was adopted. So my sister and I are black and uh, our parents are white. Um, and it was interesting 
uh, because through conversations, especially with my pop, uh, he would tell me what white folks talked about when there were no black people around. Mm. Um, so from an early age, I was getting an education on white America from my family, um, especially my pop, who was who would be in rooms with people that I knew. I knew their kids. My mom was friends with some of these people, and I would hear what they would talk about and the way they would refer to black people um, when none were around. Um, and that's as early as, you know, preschool. And were these people that to your face would no, just not act at, like not nothing? No, not at first. Um, yeah, it, it was, they would be Midwestern polite, <laughs> you know, and kids, like, we play together all the time. Like, yeah. my, my best friends lived uh, probably five blocks away. Um, there was a back trail that I could take and, and hang out with them. Um, and so at first, it wasn't to my face. Um, as I got older, that kind of changed. And actually, you know, my pop would give me books um, with black characters in them. Um, there was one book called Black is Beautiful, and it was like the first time I saw a book with black people in it. And the next one were the Ezra Jack Keats books, like Snowy Day and Goggles. And so he, he made a, a, an effort to let me be able to read about myself mm-hmm. and see people like me. Well... Um, there were subtle things that happened that I didn't catch until I was much older. Um, one example was my two best friends that lived, you know, blocks away. We would walk to school together every day. And one time we were walking and one of the one of those guys said, you're different than most black people. And at the time, uh, because of my experience, I didn't know how to take it. <laughs> like, is that a compliment? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I didn't really say anything in return. Because I didn't know what to think of it. You know, looking at back on it now, literally my sister and I were the only black people they knew. And so it, you know, it dawns on, it dawned on me that they got that from their parents. Yeah, yeah. Easily. Yeah. Um, and so me playing with them out in the yard, I wasn't allowed to go in their house. They said it was a blanket rule for all the kids. But one time their mom let me go inside the house. And I got to play. So I, I was like, I was in there one time. But when their dad was home, there was no way that I was going to be able to go in their house. And these are my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, going to school in the classrooms, uh, I remember watching, back then it was film. You know, we had film strips and we had film. Um, we would watch like National Geographic uh, presentations and there'd be like, you know, the pygmies or, you know, tribal people from sub-Saharan Africa and all my classmates would be laughing the whole time, mm. just laughing. And I knew what that was. Yeah. Um, even though it hadn't been pointed out to me, I knew what that was. And so like, I would be sitting there like sweating, just upset. Yeah. <clears throat> this is elementary school. Um, there was one of my friends that I had early on uh, who lived across the street from the school as well was a Jewish student who moved to our town from uh, Minnesota. Um, he was a hockey player. He had a hockey rink in his basement. Oh, wow. Yeah, awesome. I'd go to his house, go play with him all day long, and I did. But I found out he was Jewish because of people making fun of him for being Jewish. Yeah. He was the only Jewish kid in the school. I think everything uh, started to come into place with my understanding of um, pure bigotry um, and prejudice. I was playing, we were playing tackle football in the snow. Um, I was in, I think, third grade at the time. Mm-hmm. And our, uh, the building that housed um, first through third graders was a separate building from fourth through sixth graders. Um, so the bigger kids were up on a hill in a different building. We were playing down by our little small building, and I intercepted the pass, ran back for a touchdown, and all of a sudden, this fifth or sixth grader came running down the hill from the uh, the big playground and just started punching me, like had me on the ground, started punching me and calling me a nigger mm. while the student was doing that. 
Um, I had never heard that word before. I was going to say, was it the first time you heard it? Very first time I heard it, but I knew exactly what it was. As soon as I heard it, I was like, I put it together with all the other stuff that I was observing. Yeah. And a teacher came down. Keep in mind, like, my mom teaches at school. Yeah. So a teacher came, uh, grabbed the kid, uh, pulled the kid off me. The principal came down and got me and took me to his office and uh, opened up a yearbook (laughs) with the students' pictures and was like, who was it? So I identified who it was. And my principal was awesome. Um, he had my back the whole the whole time. Um, there were incidents later on where administrators weren't as uh, understanding of the actual situation. But in that case, the student got uh, suspended. So that was the real first time that I ever encountered that word and actually uh, in a violent and having a violent encounter mm-hmm. based on my based on race. Yeah. It was the very first time, and that was third grade. There were subtle things that happened, but that was the only real overt thing that happened during my elementary school years. And actually, when I was in sixth grade, I was voted uh, student council president. So I was the very first black student council president that the school ever had. So that was awesome. And then going from the elementary school to the junior high school, this is where things really started to change. Mm -hmm. It it pretty much has to do with um, how bodies change. You know, you're becoming more grown. Mm -hmm. And so there's apprehension, especially about me being around these white girls. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. As a teenager. So I went from being student council president, pretty popular kid, to in junior high. Yeah, I'm kind of popular, not as popular, and I'm not invited to the same stuff (laughs) that I used to be invited to. I go to house parties. But if it was like a birthday party or formal one with parents around, I think I went to one. Um, and I started to figure out kind of what that was. And it started to really uh, bear down on me. It made me kind of angry. Um, there were overt things that happened there, especially with my sister. My sister got in an argument with a girl about a boy. <laughs> it's junior high school. Yeah. Well, the girl ended up writing nigger on my sister's locker in really big letters. Mm. My sister in retaliation wrote bitch on the girl who did it, her locker. Um, My sister got out of school suspension. The white girl got in school suspension. Yeah. The principal we had at the school was from the deep South. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a a glaring example. Um, Oh, I did leave out one. So, and this is like right when I'm in seventh grade. So I used to ride, my sister and I would ride bikes to school, to junior high school. We could ride a bike to school. It was that close. Um, There was one uh, high school kid that actually uh, knocked me off my bike. Um, This is right on the street, probably a couple blocks from my house. Um, Knocked me off my bike. So I called me a nigger and punched me and just wailing on me and cars are passing. And nobody stops. Nobody stops. My sister's jumping on his back, trying to get him off of me. Um, I'm fighting back as much as I can. But, you know, it's a high school kid versus a kid who, you know, is 12. Yeah, <laughs> seventh grade. I mean? so, uh, so finally one car did stop and somebody got out and chased that kid off. And so I was able to get on my way and get back home. So that was and then I ended up seeing that kid on a on the bus later on a ride and he acted like nothing ever happened. Mm. I played, ba- I, I was an athlete, you know, from a young age. Uh, I played every sport. In the summertime, it was baseball season. Well, there was one time we played against this team and the kid pitching this is in an all white town. So all the teams are white. <laughs> the entire, all everybody's team is white. My team has me, I'm the black kid playing baseball in this town mm. we're playing against a particular team um the pitcher was really good that pitcher ended up being in the major leagues later oh, wow. um he's a good athlete great athlete um and my teammate one of my teammates sitting next to me said you know matt kind of looks like a nigger from here and i'm sitting right next to him and he was like no offense what? now what? this kid's mom was my mom's friend this kid's mom was my mom's friend yeah and it, it 
it solidified what my pop had always told me about how people talk about us when we're not around. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't say anything. We're in a park. <laughs> you know, we're playing a, a baseball game and parents are in the stands. I'm the only black person there. I can't do anything. Yeah. How can I protect myself or stand up for myself in that setting when I'm like, man, if you're saying that and your mom is my mom's friend, then what are all these other people thinking? Yeah. Who are all these other people? Um, so that stuff, you know, started weighing on me. During this whole time, uh, my pop and my mom were divorced. My pop lived in, the, in Waterloo on the east side with black people. My pop is white. Never claimed to be anything but that. He's very comfortable in his own skin, but he's way more comfortable around black people than white people because of what he's telling me. Um, he he always, you know, felt more comfortable in that setting. And so when I'm visiting, when my sister and I are visiting him every other weekend in black neighborhoods, I didn't have to deal with any of that. Yeah. At all. It was like, welcome. And the thing is, you know, the the few white kids that lived in those neighborhoods too, they didn't have to go through anything like I did. Like, you know, it was like, hey, let's go play. Yeah. Um, and some of those white kids that live in those neighborhoods had the same racist attitudes that the people in my town did. But somehow they were able to still put it aside and play. Because uh, I, I, I clearly remember some of those kids saying some of the same stuff when there was only a couple black folks around. Um, well, my pop ended up moving to Des Moines. And so I moved to Des Moines uh, the summer before my sophomore year in high school. And I, and I had been visiting Des Moines off and on for about a couple years before I actually moved. And so I had friends there. Um, we moved into a neighborhood that was a sundown neighborhood <laughs> at one time. You know, um, middle to upper class neighborhood, uh, mixed race neighborhood it was almost like the perfect place to live yeah so i ended up moving in with him i went to uh the inner city high school you know the urban high school i went to north high school and so at that school it was pretty well balanced racially um i didn't experience any of what i experienced in cedar falls Mm. nothing nothing everybody hung together everybody uh, played together, everybody, you know, ate together. It was really like a cross-cultural place. We had Southeast Asians, we had Latin kids, we had white kids, we had black kids, and and it was awesome. It, it felt really comfortable to me. It was like the best time of my life, actually, um, was my high school days with all those people. Um, Des Moines itself had its own issues, you know, especially with police, <laughs> but the school was nothing like, you know, what I was used to. So that I had a, a sigh of relief. Um, I was able to really excel and uh, grow into myself at that time. Um, and my pops actually was uh, a human rights commissioner for the city of Des Moines. And so while I'm at this, this great high school with all these great kids and, uh, my pops was the white guy who does test cases for housing discrimination and job discrimination. And so they send out identical applications. There's a white applicant and a black applicant. The white applicant would be my pop and the black applicant would be another commissioner who was black. And they would go and test different housing, uh, housing institutions, different realty uh, companies, um, and different uh, employers to test for racism and discrimination. And he would bring those results to me every day. Like I'm, I'm looking at all this evidence <laughs> of discrimination every day, you know, and so I know uh, what's going on. Um, and I've, you know, he's, he's been the person that showed me when I was really young and he was still bringing it to me. Like, this is what reality is. This is exactly what's going on out here. Um, and so that kind of um, added to uh, my knowledge base. And so the way that I've seen these things is from a fact-based position, even as much as an anecdotal position. In elementary school, 
um, during that period, I was uh, definitely surrounded by overt <laughs> systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Um, in Des Moines, that still existed, but I was somewhat protected because of the bubble of where I went to school. Mm-hmm. Um, in college, it was way more like the former. Yeah. Unfortunately, I went to Iowa State University. I was I was an activist as an undergrad because of my experience. Um, but I went through, and not just me, the black students that were at that school, we went through a lot of a lot of shit, basically. Um when I was there, we had a cafeteria worker who had KKK tattoos serving us food. Oh my god. Um <laughs> We um, there were students there who had black dolls with nooses around their neck hung on their doors. Um, we had uh, me specifically. <laughs> um, what happened with me became it became kind of a lightning rod for changes at the school that weren't necessarily the best changes. But on my floor, there was a member of this this organization called Young Americans for Freedom. It's like a really ultra conservative group. And at the time they were really anti-gay. Like that was their thing. You know, they they literally put up signs saying no fags mm. everywhere on everybody's door. Even if you didn't like, I don't want, why are you putting this on my door? You know, even, so then you would, you would identify who thinks like them by looking at who kept the stuff on the door. Yeah. Right. And on my floor, you know, there was uh, one other black student at one end of the hall. There was me and that was it. And we weren't having that. My, my black friend down the hall was gay. So why are you putting this on our doors? Mm -hmm. And so there is, it's almost like facing down um, a type of terrorism every day. Because because these images are right in front of your face, yeah, every single day, yeah. Um, it got to the point where on my door, you know, I, I would draw pictures and stuff. So I had like a sketch of Spike Lee and Nelson Mandela and Malcolm X and stuff like that on my door. Um, the the guy from Young Americans for Freedom and a couple of his friends would every time they passed my door, they would spit on it or toss beer on it. Um. One time, uh, I was awakened at four o'clock in the morning. My roommate, the fire alarm was going off, and my roommate was—he like was banging on my door. And when I woke up, my room was filled with smoke. They set my door on fire. Oh my god! There were flames that were as tall as me jumping from the bottom of my door. They, the way that I see it now is like they—they they really were trying to kill me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my door was fully engulfed in flames. And when it came time for me to have my hearing uh, through the school about what happened, because there was wit- a witness, my friend saw everything. One of the guys, one of those three guys from the Americans for Freedom hired a lawyer who sent the school a letter saying, you cannot uh, stop my client from graduating for a school procedure we weren't allowed to adjudicate outside of the school system. It had to be within the school system, within the uh, university. Yeah. So they let him graduate, and I never got justice for that at all. At all. That guy now works for the Department of Homeland Security. That is just... It doesn't make... I just... it's The thing about this for me is that it doesn't even seem real but i know that it is and it's it's insane that it's literally because you're because of your race mm-hmm. it just doesn't and and i i have never had to go through anything like that the only thing the only types of things closer like even close to that is the fact that i'm a woman and i deal with mm-hmm. that kind of stuff right but it's still nothing like what you're describing like obviously i was bullied there was stuff that happened when i was in middle and high school and college and all that stuff but it's just not it's ridiculous to me to think about the fact that this wasn't even 
that long ago. Like this sounds like archaic behavior and it's not. Oh no, I, I graduated uh I got my undergrad degree in nineteen ninety five. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It's that's crazy. And now you have kids mm-hmm. and knowing so going through what you've gone through, how have you seen changes what are your thoughts on like things that your kids have gone through how do you feel when you say i mean sending your kids to school sending i think your daughter is about to go to college she's right? in college yeah yep. she's so, a freshman this year okay well um i've always been upfront about a lot of my experiences you know dealing with this or other subjects like i i tell my kids the truth all the time, <laughs> you know, as much as I can talk to them, I, I let them know what's up. If they ask questions, I always answer. Um, I do think that things have changed generation by generation. It kind of gets better um, in a different sense. It just manifests in a different way. Mm-hmm. My kids, uh, the high school that they both went to, uh, my son's at a different high school now, but um, it's a rural, a rural school in uh in north carolina it's more diverse than my than my elementary and junior high schools were but it's not the most diverse school Mm -hmm. in the world but it's a great academic school you know my kids are great students um they get along with everybody um i've coached my kids friends and so the way that their friends and a lot of people in that community view us might be different than what they may view black folks stereotypically Mm -hmm. but that means they might not know that many you know what I mean (laughs) just like my friends when I was young um but you know I've had to I've had to to explain a lot of things to them hopefully they won't go through you know any of what I did um we made sure we took them to the civil rights museum in Greensboro so they could see what that was and I was able to talk to them afterward about you know, how far we've come, but also to be able to identify um, the way that racism manifests today. Um, because it's still the systemic and institutionalized white supremacy that exists. And there's no other way for me to really say that. I mean, that's what it is. Um, it's not going anywhere too soon. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully it gets dismantled uh Eventually, I think there will be a, a watershed moment where uh, white folks are the minority if you include all other people <laughs> in the majority. Mm-hmm. That, that day's coming. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing now in the political landscape is there, there are people right now um, in the current administration who really believe that America is and should always be a white majority country. That is a foundation of a lot of the policy um, policy pushes that we're seeing, um, because when you have uh, people who their whole push was against illegal immigration, all of a sudden start attacking legal immigration, um, they are showing exactly uh, what their true face is. What do you think stems this? fear to honestly just fear of diversity fear of change fear of any kind of not like me what do you what are your thoughts on where that comes from from your perspective i'm not a psychologist so it's hard for me to diagnose exactly all the factors that come into play some of it is socialization some of it you know um like minds tend to you know, congregate together. Mm-hmm. You know, there are race theory books that are written about this subject that get heavy into the psychology of it. But I really don't know. I really don't know. I um, I have no idea. Uh, there's a phrase going around in the white supremacy world about uh, white genocide. <laughs> and these people equate uh, interracial relationships to genocide. You're wiping out white people by having babies with, you know, other races. You know what I mean? And they think there's a push for this instead of just uh, acknowledging the fact that, you know, love sees no color. When people fall in love, sometimes they have kids. You know what I mean? And I'm actually a product of a biracial relationship. At the time I was born, it was not accepted for uh, 
interracial people to get married. Um, and that's why I was given up for adoption, I believe, um, just based on the, the, the time. So you've never met your birth parents? Never, never. Uh, I, I know my, uh, my biological father's black. My biological mother is white. That's okay. what I But being a product of a biracial uh, relationship does not impact the way that I see myself as much as the racism <laughs> of being black mm-hmm. has. So there is no question that I identify as being a black man because that's exactly who I am, you know, in our society. If I lived somewhere else, that it would be a different story, probably, you know. Um, but um, I don't know. I, I think that there's just a, a particular history of this country. There was a time in the 1880s when um, when this country would not allow Asians to immigrate. Um, there was a time in the, uh, around 1925, I think, where they uh, limited, they actually had quotas for immigration based on the country of origin, <laughs> and it was all race-based. Um, all that went away in 1965. Uh, but now you have people in Congress and uh, the Senate and the president who are actually pushing for these quotas again, where we're going to limit where we take people from, you know, um, it's like controlled diversity. Like we oh, yeah. get to decide how yeah. diverse our country gets to be. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it's, you know, make no mistake. It is based on race. They can oh, point yeah. to countries, but that's not what it's really about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have to be very aware that that's exactly what's happening. You know, we there right now we have people who want us to go backwards and we really only in the last 50 years have had any semblance of reaching equity. That's how short the amount of time has been. You know, the uh, 1965, the Voting Rights Act, so you had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 1965. That was the last real piece of, of actual uh, legislation that... Um, is used to promote equality. Brown versus Board of Education, the desegregation case was in 1955, or it's it 55, 52. Don't get me lying. And I'm a history major, it sucks. My my memory's getting bad. Yeah, it was 1955, uh, Brown versus Board of Education. So literally from 1965 till now is when uh, the government enforced uh, equality. But there's the economic part too, right? So black folks were not allowed to invest in the stock market until 1970. Mm-hmm. So if you want to add economics to it, from 1970 until now, there are people who have expected uh, black folks to catch up <laughs> with everybody else in that short period of time. Yeah. It, so... That's unrealistic. And to go backwards means you're going to squeeze that time frame to be even a shorter period. Like if we go backwards and then have to go forward again, it, and then the same people expect the bulk of black folks to catch up, it's just never going to happen. You know, and by design, I think that's exactly what they want to happen. <laughs> yeah. And you mean catch up as far as having the same equality or the, yeah, the I mean, equity, as you said? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, economics is is just as key as the social construct. Um, And when you weren't allowed to own property, when you were property, you weren't allowed to own property. Um, If you did own property, it was forcibly taken from you. You know, there's no way to build wealth as a community. There's just no way. Everything's disposable. The economic literacy is is low because there's never been a, a real history of what it takes to accumulate wealth. Yeah. The people that have the most money the real wealthy people, they don't pay for anything. They're given a lot of things. Because if, if, you're, if you're able, if we give this to you and you let everyone know that you have it and it came from us, it increases the value of that product, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a real di- dichotomy that exists as well. Some of the places that I lived, um, when I lived in Durham, there was a time when I lived, you know, in East Durham, in the hood. Um, 
and the closest grocery store, you had to either take a bus, get a cab, or drive there. If you're too poor to own a car, now you're having to pay for transportation mm-hmm. to go get, get real groceries. Or you go to the corner store and get junk food. So then it starts affecting your health, right? And so then you have very high rates of high blood pressure, uh, obesity, diabetes, and it costs money to treat these things. Mm -hmm. And so really the poorest people end up paying the most to live. And that is absolutely true. And unfortunately, at a disproportionate rate, uh, black folks are, you know, very far down on the, the wealth scale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it and it it's based on history, like nothing more than history. That's it's historical policies and the in the systemic uh system that that we live in. And we're living in 2018 and a lot of that stuff has not changed. Yeah, I was thinking about this today that like you the you said the hood mm-hmm. and that there I mean, I grew up in South Florida, which is pretty pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's parts of Florida that are like very wealthy, white, mostly old people. Mm-hmm. Um, but where I grew up in Fort Lauderdale and Hollywood area, the school that I went to was was pretty diverse. But there, but what I always find interesting, and I think a lot of what you're saying kind of solidifies this for me, is that there are still like, oh, that's a black area. Oh, that's a white area. And to me, it it's like, oh, that's, that sounds a lot like segregation, but that's not something that has, that black people are like, oh, we're going to isolate ourselves. Like they, from what it sounds like, from what you're saying and from what I've been thinking, that's something that has happened because they're not, y'all are not given the opportunity to live in those areas and you're frankly not wanted in those areas so like I can't afford to live there because you have made it unaffordable for me in more than more than one way and why the hell am I going to want to be around these people that don't want to be around me and so then it ends up being very apparent that segregation while it's not a law and everything the way that it was back then and being enforced that way so outright it's definitely still a thing oh yeah so if we return to so my pop was one of the testers for housing discrimination yeah and usually how that works because it is against the law to discriminate based on race for housing right Mm -hmm. so one of the ways that uh it's exhibited is When those identical applications are sent, they will take the white applicant, housing applicant, or the white person looking to buy a house to completely different neighborhoods than the black person with the housing application looking to buy a house. They'll take the black person to a a neighborhood that's mostly black and never show them houses in neighborhoods that have you know, mostly white people are all white people. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the ways that it manifests. That's illegal. Yeah. But it still happens. Yeah. Right. America is extremely segregated. Um, It used to be by law. Now it's just de facto. Yeah. Like, I'm not even going to show you these houses over here. And it doesn't even matter the income level. And here's where it's really insidious. Right. So poor white folks and lower middle class white folks tend to go to school at schools that have mixed economic families. Mm-hmm. Poor black kids go to school with other poor black kids. Yeah. There is no mixed economy in those places, right? Um, and that's by, that, that is by design. That is by design. They cannot even take advantage of the tax structure of their, um, of their uh, locale because there is none, Right. But the kids that live in a trailer park, they go to the school with the kids with the four hundred thousand dollar houses. That they're benefiting from the taxes accrued from the people that live in those big houses, and they're able to benefit from that education, right? And that's real. So a solution would be to have more mixed economic neighborhoods 
that are mixed racially as well. If you look at the black students who go to those schools, you know, they're the extreme minority, um, but they're athletes or they are top top academic scholars. Yeah, I was or gonna say. Or both. Yeah. Right. That you know, unless you can really pay for it all the way and you have a lot of money, there's no real average black kids at those schools. They're special at something. Yeah. And so um it it becomes where these black bodies are commodities. Yeah, I was gonna say it's benefiting the school. Yeah. It's not really actual yeah. diversity and welcoming it's oh you're something that we can that we can tell people we that can we have use. yeah you we, know, can, we use. can use you yeah so then when you know uh roy williams and coach k come to recruit you our school is known because you're coming to recruit our basketball players or whatever it is um yeah so all that is real and all that it still exists you know in 2018 <laughs> so another thing that i don't think that i knew I knew that you were mixed race, but I did not know that you were adopted. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you were adopted? Were I was you? a baby. Okay. And what I want to know is, so obviously there are those, there are white people that are being racist towards you and treating you in this terrible way, but your parents are white. Mm -hmm. So what, how does that, do you ever have any resentment towards your parents? Do you ever feel confused about any of that? Or is it just like my parents have supported me all through and through? Not all white people are like this, but there are still some that are out there. Or is it, can you not help but generalize? I don't, I don't, I I've learned not to generalize at all. Like from a young age, again, like it's individuals and, you know, my pop was very specific about who he's talking about. You know, it's this person, that person, you know, this person. Watch out for this parent. You know what I mean? And he 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 actually did a great job. Um, my mom, on the other hand, is a different story. As far as the there's other components, but as far as the the racial aspect of it, uh, my mom has never been comfortable around black people. <laughs> Ever, which is it boggles my mind that she would want to adopt two black kids. Yeah, because I mean, you, you're not there. You have to pick the kids you adopt. You know, they don't just give them to you. Exactly, and so like, um, I literally only saw my mom around two black people. There, was, she had one friend, I guess, from college. Um, it was a black man. I saw him like a couple times, and then uh, my aunt's husband is from Nigeria, and so that was the other person that I saw. It was literally two people. Meanwhile, my pops is living in black neighborhoods his almost his entire existence that I've that I've known him. Um, so it's two completely different worlds. My mom's uh, side of the family, except for you know a couple cousins, they're extremely conservative, evangelical types, mm. right? And so that was another thing that was adding into all the layers that were weighing on me, right? When I have an aunt that when they said to me when I was about 14 years old, 13 or 14, she said, well, aren't you glad that you all were taken as slaves because um, otherwise you'd be living in a hut? My aunt said that to me. My aunt said that to me. Yeah. Right. So even people related to me, I'm side. I got side eyes right. for them. My other aunt, the one married to the Nigerian is like, she's ultra liberal and progressive. Uh, my mom is, you know, liberal and progressive to a point, but she's how I see a lot of white liberal folks. It's like, oh, yeah, we're for this. We just don't want to be around you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or we don't live around y'all, so we don't really have to think about this. But yeah. theoretically, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, you know, as far as as my mom goes, it she's... She she's more typical of probably a majority of white folks as opposed to my pops who's like hardly any white people that I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and um I use him as an example of of white folks that I really can fully trust. Yeah. I use him as the example, like not my mom. My mom is more representative of, you know, white folks that I get along with and we can hang out and stuff, but I'm not sure if I'm really going to trust you. What is your relationship like with your mom now? 
I mean, based on other things, it's not the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I still love her, but the likability part, she's likable. And, you know, every once in a while we have substantive um, discussions, but I remember all of this. So it's it's just very complicated, um, but it was very eye-opening to see all of that, like, right up real close to me. Like, these people are supposed to, they're my family, they're supposed to love me, but, man, do they have some really funky ideas. Yeah. If things really changed and we got to a point where white people were more accepting and not trying to do the force segregation and all the other atrocities that they commit towards black people and actually really started building a place where they were more welcoming towards black people would you basically is it is it too late is it ever too late it's not too late and i mean it's it's going to take a real systemic and institutional change for this to be right. Mm-hmm. It's not even just the attitudes, right? It's, it's policy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's policy, it's enforcement, it's who's in charge. I, I think the majority of white folks are perfectly fine and would love to see uh, equity. Yeah. I, I really think that. You know, I think there are more of us than them. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, really. But it's the power brokers that really make a change that they, they can really make a change um the people can push them but you know we're talking purse strings you know you got to have money um you, you got to have exposure you have to know what the law is know what the policies are and be able to to change them and over time a lot of that stuff has changed and so you know i don't want it's not gloom and doom like it's not we're, we're not worse than it was before we are at a time when people are being they're more aware yeah <laughs> you know because honestly it, the the truth of the matter is this, right? So everything that I that I laid out about my life, white folks never have to think about that. But yeah, I think more way more people are aware. Way more white folks are aware. Yeah. Or woke as as they say. Uh, I don't say that. But they're <laughs> they are more aware. Because when you see somebody leading the country who is <laughs> You know, when they dispense when they dispense of dog whistles and start using, you know, bullhorns to like really say what they really mean, more people see it now. You know, um, I think that uh, any intersectionality in movements is great. Intersectionality in uh, thought process um, is great. But that awareness isn't enough. Right. right. Being aware isn't enough. You have to know how to attack and how to dismantle um, the things that are wrong. Right. You know, and that's what I'm hoping the next step will be. I think the last year, I think people are finally figuring out, like, everything isn't as great as we thought it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when you can see where it can slide back to, who wants to go back there? You know, no one I know does. You know, well, that's not true. I probably do know a couple people that think that. Yeah, I mean, I know people that, I mean, I don't, I know them in the sense that I am aware that they exist and I probably went to high school with some of them, but I don't know them as in I would ever invite them to be anywhere near me. Yeah, they're not my circle. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, And why would they be? Yeah. Um, So there's uh, an owner of a small uh, theatrical production company that's now a, a, a nonprofit um, in the area. And I've had discussions like this with her for years now, like probably the last four or five, four or five years. She, she's curious. She asked me a lot of questions, um, car rides to productions. So, you know, we'll talk about these things. Like she's really interested in these things. Well, I had a conversation with her one time about uh, police interaction with, with black males. And she asked me, like, well, what can I do as a white woman? You know, well, well, what can I do? And I was like, I don't know. But if you if you see, you know, a young black male getting pulled over, if you pull over, you know, 20 feet behind and just watch, maybe that could help. Yeah. She does that now. Like, literally, when I said that, she does that now. And she said the first time she did it, the, the black man that was driving the car, you know, when the when the cop finally left. He was laughing. He was like, what are you doing? She was like, no, I'm just making sure you're all right. I'm just going to make sure you're okay. Um, she made a conscious effort 
to actually just be an observer because having someone watch who's not black, it will put a check on some of this stuff. So I guess one of my one of my other questions would be what can we do? So, you know, you you don't want to interfere in police business no you know, and, yeah. and get arrested yourself. But from a safe distance, uh, our phones are becoming our greatest our greatest uh, weapon against, you know, mistreatment. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so if you if you do see something like record it, record it. And there are um, applications from from ACLU and, and a couple other organizations that are apps you can download. Um, so it'll send out the information while you're videoing it. It goes to them. It's secure, so they can't pull it off your phone. You know what I mean? So there, there are things that you can do just as a citizen, just to make sure, like, I'm going to make sure that this isn't something that gets out of hand, right? But, you know, don't interfere. Just be from a distance. But that actually can help because mm-hmm. if they're knowing you're watching, then some of that stuff won't go down. Right. You know what I mean? And, and it makes it safe for for um, the person getting pulled. Sometimes it even makes it safer for the cop. You know what I mean? Um, so that's as far as that relates. As far as like the systemic part, there are organizations that are fighting to dismantle um, the things that are in place that are inhibiting progress. Right. There are real legitimate organizations that do this like that is their purpose um like southern uh, poverty law center fights against um extremist groups in the court they also keep tabs on them <clears throat> there's over 900 uh white supremacists and extreme white white right-wing anti-government groups in this country right now north carolina has a lot of them like north carolina has a very high concentration especially in the west of of these types of groups right um so that's an organization that's doing something so you know uh, giving money to groups like that helps. It's it's not just a token gesture. It's actually used, especially in the courts, to identify and track these organizations. The um, the statistics just came out that you know more Americans are killed by uh, white supremacist terrorist organizations than any other combined in the United States by far. And that's something that a lot of people miss. Like they don't realize that that's the truth, but that is the truth. Um, you had uh, in Portland, there were there was the guy with the sword that that stabbed the two people on the train that were trying to protect a, a young Muslim woman and a, and a black girl from getting accosted by a white supremacist. Um, you had the guy in in New York, the soldier that got stabbed with a sword. Like, what is up with these swords? Yeah, like, he got stabbed ridiculous. with a sword. Yeah, um, Dylan Roof. You know what I mean? You you have you have these examples of these these um, white supremacist terrorist organizations and the people that hold these ideas that are actually committing real violence against American people. And our new uh, attorney general decided to make a report on black identity extremists, which don't exist. But he he will not look at these other groups that are actually doing the the killing. For some reason, they think that there were actually groups in the seventies that were pretty hardcore and violent. <laughs> you know, that were like, oh no, we're gonna you know just attack the government and do this, that, and other. Um, but they're bringing those types of descriptions to modern day movements, and it's not real, right? So they're spending time on a on a red herring instead of actually getting to the root. Mm-hmm. Of of people who are actually really dangerous, you know, um, Heather Heyer killed in Charlottesville. You know what I mean? Um, by a white supremacist, just mowed down with a car. Yeah. Oh you, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is real. It, it's real. Um, and so anything to combat that, there are events that happen that are intersectional events. Those can be useful to network and find out what kind of work people are doing. Like these should be not about, you know, getting drinks and eating cake. You know, it's about well, what are y'all doing? Like, mm-hmm. let me find out what you're doing. How can I get involved? Because there are organizations already doing work. They just need help. They need manpower. They need money. You know, so that would be my suggestion. Like find an organization that's actually putting in the work and support them somehow. You know, even um, even if uh, it's making calls to Congress people. That's something you can do, too. If there's something you can get behind, that will help alleviate this stuff. But it's going to take it is going to take the majority of people 
uh, to make these changes. Like black folks can't do this ourselves. Right. You know, Latino folks can't do this themselves. Um, LGBT people can't do this themselves. Like we, there, there aren't enough of us. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we have to have white allies that are actually real allies that aren't paying lip service that are actually doing work. Yeah. You know, because that's the only way things will change. Yeah. What is one of the biggest, if you had to pick, obviously there are many, but what is one of the biggest changes that you would like to see happen in your lifetime? If you had to pick one that is, they're all important, but just one. Well, I think um, a unified effort to do something about income equality Mm. would probably get the most traction because it's something that's not necessarily couched in race, even though it impacts yeah. Minority folks are mm-hmm. a whole lot more, mm-hmm. but it's something that you can couch in terms where the majority can can get behind. Right. Um, because that gap is getting so big now yeah. that there probably will be pitchforks at the gate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that would probably be a real thing because people will start waking up and like, man, why is the CEO of this co- of this company making 10,000 times more than the average worker? You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's something I think that if if that inequality gap can be lessened and if we can see more flow of the economy go through average people, I think that that will help. And that's not and that's something that capitalism won't fix because, you know, capitalism to its core means the CEO can make 10,000 times more than his worker. And it's a great thing, you know, as if they're going to invest (laughs) <laughs> in the in the people that are making that they right don't, they yeah. don't you know um the fact that uh you know our unemployment rate is so low is great but most of these jobs are hourly wage jobs most of these jobs aren't paying people a living wage right you know what i mean yeah so if you work 40 hours at minimum wage you still have to work 40 another 40 hours at minimum wage to afford to live yep you know what i mean mm-hmm. and that affects people of color more than any any other people right so that's something i think that more people can actually get behind right so i think that's that's probably the major thing um economic um economic understanding and, and shortening that that gap you know a, another solution um a solution to the educational gap uh, would be to have way more mixed income housing in the united states there will always be gated communities but outside of the gated communities if you have people from different economic backgrounds going to school together living in the same neighborhoods together um, interacting with each other more often that brings the the um it brings the educational intelligence up mm-hmm. of everyone right and it also introduces a um a form of diversity that um that is needed as well for people to understand each other more if you have never had to worry about where you're gonna get food from day to day um, if you never had to worry about where you're going to live <laughs> from day to day, if you've never had your utilities shut off, you know, if you if you have not experienced these things, then there is no way for you to even have empathy for people that that go through this if you don't live around them and, and talk with them. Right. And the truth is the people that have dealt with this don't want to talk about it because it's embarrassing. Right. As always, I really can't thank you all enough for taking the time to listen to this episode and any episode of Who Knows. Like I said at the beginning, there are so many stories to be told and so much to learn. And I really hope that this episode was informative to you in one way or another and that you were able to get something out of it. I know that I really learned a lot talking to G and I'd like to thank him for coming on and having this conversation. I am tremendously grateful. Like I said before, and I feel this way about all of our episodes, this is just one conversation and there are so many more to be had. We have a few more episodes coming up for you in this season, but if there's an episode in particular from this season that you feel like you want to hear more about, let us know. Reach out on Facebook, Instagram, email. We'd love to know what you guys want to hear about. You can find more episodes of Who Knows on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Dankovich, edited and co-produced by Maria Wartell. 
Our music this week is by Colin Nance and Chris Williams. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcastwhoknows at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We are always taking suggestions about things to talk about on the show. Uh, We want to talk about everything, so let us know what you want to hear about. We also have an Instagram page, which is at who knows podcast. Um, that'll be a really good place to find out about what our next episodes are going to be and other updates we might want to send out there. We're also on Facebook now. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at who knows with a question mark. Thanks again for listening. Who knows who's out there, but you rock and I love you. Thank you so much. As always, I'm like screaming at you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a shit. I'm a shitty person. As always, I can't thank you all enough for taking the time to listen to this episode. I'm like scratching my nose now. Okay. 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 Here we go. For real. This is it. I'm sorry. I'm a shitty person. I'm not a shitty person, but like, I feel like it. Okay. As always, bleh. oh my God, I'm failing today.